Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Also, Sarah, please don't have your baby while I'm talking. That would be, that would be, although I am a qualified WebMD doctor, so I think that I could, I think that I could help you if you needed it. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I uh, have great expertise in that area. Uh, so it's so good to see all of you um, here. Honestly, it's just been amazing to see Contrast grow over the last couple of months since we've come into our permanent space here, or a semi-permanent space here, three-year lease. Uh, <laughs> so it's good to see you all. There's so many new faces, and it really feels like our time at Grace Fellowship was forever ago, which was actually the last time I spoke was at Grace Fellowship, and I got roasted this week for my talk the last time. Apparently, I spent like half of the time talking about my personal interests, uh, which is, is true, one of which being the Hubble Space Telescope. And the big news this week was the first colorized images from the James Webb Space Telescope. I've had multiple people come up to me and be like, what did you think about the images? I was like, they were great. I don't know. I was, it's what I was expecting. Come on, get with the program here. <laughs> Everybody knew they were going to be amazing. So if you haven't seen the pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope, please go look at them. They're just absolutely incredible. Uh, I'm Adam. I'm the creative director here at Contrast, and I uh, sing in the worship band as well, so sometimes you've seen me up on stage. Art. What? Art? Art? <laughs> I, sure, okay. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be heckled today. <laughs> anyway, uh, as is, uh, I think, the tradition for any guest speaker, uh, I will now show you a picture of my beautiful family. Oh, he's, <laughs> I, he was, this isn't the right one. He was too busy doing something else more important. Go to the next one. There he is, yeah. Yeah, so this is me and my son. Uh, he has four legs, sharp teeth, and a loud bark. Uh, but I, I do love him, and I will say that being a single dad is both a challenge uh, and a reward. <laughs> And just so we're clear, I, I do realize that he is a dog. He is not a real child. I'm, I'm not a real dad. Just in case anybody is like, whoa, that guy's a little office rocker. <laughs> so that's me. His name is Clark. Uh, he is a bundle of joy, and he causes a lot of pain on my arms. <laughs> anyway, by a show of hands, how many of you grew up on the LBCU, the Left Behind Cinematic Universe? Anyone raise your hand? Yeah, that's what I, yeah, there's, there's a handful of you. That uh, is a train wreck of a series. Honestly, I think the only thing that was really left behind in that show was theological accuracy. Uh, so, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in a church that proudly had the Left Behind series in the church library. And if you wanted a place to just carry planefuls of baggage about the book of Revelation, that was the place. And I feel now, as I've gotten older and been able to have um, different sources of input on the book of Revelation, I feel like what I grew up with was rather inaccurate. And I grew up 
hearing a lot of things about the book of Revelation that made me scared, fearful, full of doom. And honestly, I did not look forward to the, the second coming of Jesus or the end of the world and all of that stuff that we're supposed to look forward to and say, hey, this is like, this is like the end of it. This is what we've been waiting for. It was like, this sounds really scary. Like, I don't think that I want any of this to happen. I don't want to be on a plane and have the pilot disappear. Like, that's, I mean, I guess technically I would also have disappeared, but, you know, it gets complicated. <laughs> anyway, I, I really didn't have excitement about the return of Jesus. And it was scary thinking about what prophecy means and, and what the end of the world means. And to be clear, I think in this context, the end of the world also meant the end of America. There is a rather uncomfortable, I think, reality that sometimes we have in our churches in America where we tend to make the Bible a very American book. And the book of Revelation, in this case, I think, was projected as a prophecy that was talking about America as a nation, our standing in the world, uh, our influence, and the downfall thereof, which then we can relate to all sorts of things on how we then go about and approach policy and politics in our, in our culture within the church. And I think that we're living in an age where our Christian culture, in, in terms of the book of Revelation, has been built and is being built on generations of misapplication of the scripture, and I would say that Revelation is one of, if not the most, misapplied scripture and book in the Bible. And so today, I would like to take as fresh of a look at the passage that we're going to talk about as we can, and try to set aside everything that we have brought about the book of Revelation and prophecy and the end times, and set it aside for a moment and say, okay, what does it look like if we really take an honest look at this scripture and this passage and see what it says? And to be totally transparent, I am not a biblical scholar. I'm not a pastor. I don't spend my life uh, professionally studying this. This is also not a great way to start persuasion is to automatically like cut down your authority. Like, I have no authority. Don't listen to me. But... All I am is just a person who has been entrusted in this time to speak on this passage. And so what I've done is taken time to just collect opinions and thoughts and resources from other people who are a lot smarter than me and who have spent a lot more time on this. And my job today is just to regurgitate it to you, to give it to you in a way that can be meaningful, understandable, and um, applicable. Uh, and so, with that in mind, I brought this book. This is an amazing book. Um, it is the NIV Application Commentary on Revelation by Craig Keener. I know that it is NIV. We are an NET church. This is probably the biggest scandal in contrast history so far, um, just so you know. But if you are interested in doing a deep dive in, into Revelation, I would highly recommend picking up a book like this. It is incredible, the wealth of knowledge and, and context and understanding that somebody like Craig Keener can bring to this scripture. Uh, so I would recommend go and pick up a book like this or a similar commentary if you want. Or if you're like me, you can borrow it from a friend, keep it for too long, and then when he moves to Tennessee and is wondering where his commentary on Revelation is, it's here in my hand. <laughs> 
So I do want to read a section from the introduction, though, because I think Craig says it in better ways than I can, and I'm not just going to pretend that I'm not just plagiarizing his words. I'm going to read directly from it, uh, just to give a little context, again, to the book of Revelation. So this is under his section, The Key to Interpretation. It says, some readers believe that current events unlock the meaning of the biblical prophecies. Thus, for example, one writer opines that even Luther and Calvin, quote, knew little about prophecy. But that study Bible editor, C.I. Schofield, rightly pointed out that Revelation was written to allow end-time interpreters to unlock its meaning. Yet this approach to me seems wrong-headed. I believe that it runs up against the evidence of Revelation itself. John writes to seven literal churches in literal Asia Minor, following the same sequence in which a messenger traveling Roman roads would deliver the book. If we take seriously what the book itself claims, then it was a book that must have made good sense to its first hearers, who were, in fact, blessed for obeying it. That John wrote the book in Greek probably suggests that he also used figures of speech and symbols that were part of his culture more than ours. That the book was to remain unsealed even in his generation also indicates that it was meant to be understood from that time forward. Perhaps an even more compelling reason exists to argue for focusing on ancient rather than modern background for understanding the book of Revelation. If today's newspapers are a necessary key to interpreting the book, then no generation until our own could have understood and obeyed the book, contrary to its assumption in, verse, in chapters 1, verse 3. They could, not have the, they could not have read the book of, as scripture, profitable for teaching and correction, an approach that does not fit a high view of biblical authority. If, however, the book was understandable for the first generation, subsequent generations can profit from the book simply by learning some history. Some popular prophecy teachers have ignored much of the history that is available, preferring to interpret the book in light of current newspaper headings. That is probably why most of them have to revise their predictions every few years as the headlines change. And if you don't think that there are real-world consequences to misinterpreting scripture like Revelation, he also writes uh, under prophetic failures that the massive loss of life among David Koresh's followers in Waco, Texas, involved a misreading of the book of Revelation. Prophetic speculation is not, however, a new phenomenon. Jewish works sometimes guessed numbers and times still future, and history proved them wrong. Early church fathers also indulged in some speculations that never materialized, such as Hippolytus' view that the world would end in AD 500. Um, it didn't. Unfortunately, many modern prophecy teachers have not scored much better. So as Keener mentions here, there is immense importance in treating Revelation as historically relevant, meaning that it is addressing real people in a real place at a real time. So today, to explore that, we're going to look at John and, by extension, Jesus's address to the church in Smyrna through this historical lens in three layers. First, we're going to start at the country, the Roman Empire. We're going to start at the city, Smyrna, and then we're going to go to the church and unfold this letter in those three stages. So let's start with the country. Basically, we have two parallel timelines, and it, it essentially extends to the entire first century. So uh, at one end, you have AD 0, the other uh, AD 100. Now, as we know, the birth of Jesus is the dividing line between BC and AD. 
So the birth of Jesus marks the first year, the first century AD. But interestingly enough, the first century AD doesn't just mark the birth of Jesus, it also marks the birth of the Roman Empire. You see, at this time, just before the birth of Jesus, the first, and, and if you'll remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem because he was called there, his parents were called there uh, to complete a census by Caesar Augustus. Well, Caesar Augustus was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Just a, a handful of years before, uh, Augustus was actually named Octavian, and he ruled with Lepidus and Mark Antony. This is the Mark Antony of Cleopatra, right? So like Cleopatra and Mark Antony, lots of death and weird things are happening, right? Uh, eventually, Octavian gains complete control of the Roman Empire. Uh, he becomes the sole leader for the first time in Roman history. The Roman Republic is officially dead. Roman Empire, right alongside the birth of Jesus. So we are talking about crazy political, social, religious, ethnic instability and change that is happening as the backdrop to Jesus being born, right? Then we can fast forward all the way up to around the end of the first century where the book of Revelation is believed to have been circulating. So these letters would have been uh, disseminated to these churches. And that's kind of our, our end point. And in between, we have a whole bunch of stuff that has happened. We have 13 emperors in between there, including one year where there are four emperors. It's known as the year of four emperors. If you can imagine how crazy that would be living in Rome, and you're like, we've had four emperors this year. This is, this is nuts. It's crazy. There were some good ones. There were some really bad ones, like the infamous Nero. Um, there were civil wars. There were uprisings. There was famine. There was conflict. And again, political assassinations and upheaval and all sorts of stuff that is going on at this time. And so there is a bunch of change that is happening in the first century. And eventually we get to the 11th emperor, who is Emperor Domitian. Now, Emperor Domitian is the emperor that is believed to be in power at the time that the book of Revelation is being written. He is generally considered a pretty good policymaker, a pretty competent emperor for the most part, but like a lot of the emperors, he has some pretty major problems. Uh, and probably the biggest one, at least for our context, is that he insisted on declaring himself a god. And it was not uncommon at this time for emperors to be deified, but there was a process for it. Typically, it happened after the emperor died the Senate would then basically vote and declare the emperor a god, a deification. For an emperor to actually declare that for themselves while they were alive was super scandalous. And not only that, but he also would go around making people refer to him with the phrase dominus et deus, which means master and god. Now, this would have caused a ton of tension between the emperor and the ruling senatorial class because, again, the senatorial class, the Senate did exist, it, it, did exist, it was just largely ceremonial at this point. Uh, they would have said, hey, this is our power, and you're not allowed to do this, and that's a massive example of hubris and arrogance, and we, we don't like this. So Domitian automatically has this big tension between himself and a lot of the other important aristocracy 
and ruling families in the Roman Empire, okay? So, interestingly enough, Domitian is also one of only, he's two other emperors at this point to have declared himself a god while he was alive. The first was Caligula, the second was Nero. So if you're looking for a telltale sign that somebody is a bad emperor, it's that they're like, hey, I'm a god, instead of just a person, right? That's a, that's a pretty good one, because neither of those other two were great. All of them were denied god status by the Senate after they died, just as a side note, too. So it didn't really pan out for them, I guess. <laughs> Okay, so if you are an emperor and you're like, hey, I'm a god, uh, this is what I'm doing, how do you receive worship? Well, at this time, there would have been a system called the imperial cult. So the imperial cult is pretty much what it sounds like, a cult designed to worship the emperor. Uh, it was something that was more common in the Greek provinces of Rome initially because it was more of a Greek tradition to deify human leaders and worship them as such. Again, the Romans viewed their leaders as mortals. They didn't tend to deify them until after their death as sort of like a memorial to them, if you will. So the empirical began to be encouraged by the emperors, though, as a way to gain control and support of people across the empire, especially in these provinces that weren't part of Rome proper, that Rome had conquered. And so it was a way for the emperors to gain uh, admiration and support from the people and a way for the people to gain support from the emperor. And of course, an emperor like Domitian is going to encourage this as much as he can. So with that, we come to the city of Smyrna. Smyrna is modern-day Izmir in Turkey. And it was a major city in the Asia Minor province of Rome. And it often uh, vied heavily for prominence with Ephesus, which was the city that we talked about last week. And Smyrna was designated by Rome as a center for the imperial cult. So this has become now a very important part of life in Smyrna, participating in the imperial cult. And Smyrnian leaders uh, were super enthusiastic to participate in this cult because it was a mechanism for them to gain favor from the central Roman government. Smyrna at this time also seems to have had a significant population of Jews. And in Rome at this time, Jews were protected and they were the only group that were exempt from participating in the imperial cult. Rome recognized that Jews were a monotheistic and ancient religious ethnic group and they deemed that that was valuable enough to protect. Very progressive of Rome. So the Jews in Smyrna would have not had to make the choice between worshiping the God of the Bible in their synagogue or worshiping the emperor as God in the imperial cult at the temples in Smyrna. They were protected from this. Now, just 20 years earlier, the Jews had a major uprising, a revolt against Rome in Jerusalem that Rome quickly crushed. And so at this point, because of that uprising that failed, Rome required that all Jews everywhere in the entire empire had to pay a punitive tax. So imagine you're a Jew who has these special protections, but you're kind of on thin ice because of things that have happened. 
And now, in Smyrna, you have a group of people with, within your you know, little community, your Jewish community, who are becoming more prophetic, messianic Jews. That is, the Christians at this time, right? So the Jews in Smyrna would not have liked that the Christians are starting to assimilate with them, to connect themselves to Judaism, that they're coming to temple, that they're participating in the Jewish traditions because it is threatening their status and their protections. And so eventually the Jews begin to distance themselves from the Christians up to the point where they expel them from the synagogue altogether. They say, look, I don't, you guys, you're not Jews. Like, you're something else. We don't want you to be a part of our club anymore. You go do your own thing which then has exposed the Christians there to persecution by the Smyrnians because they have now lost their protection as Jews because the Jewish leaders are saying, hey, these people aren't a part of us. They don't deserve our special protections, okay? The Smyrnian rulers would have also had a strong interest now in forcing compliance with any of the non-Jewish populations into the imperial cult to, again, keep favor with the Roman government, to keep favor with the emperor. So now this brings us to the exact circumstances of the church in Smyrna when the letter in Revelation was written. These Christians were faced with crushing pressure on both sides. On one side, they have the Jews that have just kicked them out of the synagogue and the temple. On the other hand, they have the Smyrnians who don't like the idea of unfaithfulness to the emperor. And we get a pretty clear view of this in the letter to the church in Revelation, uh, the church of Smyrna in Revelation. And Keener actually points out that each of the letters follows a similar pattern, which I think we'll see when we go through all of them. And they usually balance praise and reproof. And it looks like this. So the first part of the letters always read, to the angel of the church in a given city, write... Jesus, depicted in glory, often in terms of Revelation chapter 1, 13 through 18, says, I know, in most instances, some praise, but I have this against you, offers some reproof where applicable. The one who has ears must pay attention to what the Spirit says, and then an eschatological promise. So let's go ahead and read the letter to Smyrna in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. It says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who is the first and the last, the one who was dead but came to life. I know the distress you are suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and really are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so you may be tested and you will experience suffering for 10 days. Remain faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown that is life itself. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. Now, there are a lot of contrasts. Funny enough, contrasts. There are a lot of contrasts in this, uh, in this passage there are the first and the last, what was dead but is now alive, you're poor, but now you're rich. And I think it's a really beautiful comparison 
to Jesus himself. Jesus was materially poor, but spiritually rich. He was killed, but raised from the dead. And he's telling his followers in Smyrna, the Christians there, he's saying, look, I see you. I know what you've been going through. I've been there. You are going to be poor. You're going to be outcast. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be placed last. You're going to be punished. You're going to be thrown in prison, both short-term and long-term. The, the suffering for 10 days is likely a reference to a, a Roman holding period, meaning they would throw people in jail and it would be they would hold them in jail for a certain period of time before that they could bring them to trial to see if the evidence against them stuck. So sometimes people were held in jail for a short period of time, 10 days, and released. Others, they were not, and they were held for a long time and eventually killed. He says, you're going to suffer and you're going to die. And the people who should be most on your side are going to be some of your greatest adversaries. At this time, there's a high likelihood that some of the Jews in the Jewish community in Smyrna were acting as a Latin word called delatores. It means informers. So the Jews in this community not only tried to distance themselves from the Christians, they were actively working as informers with the local officials to try to find, punish, and oppress the Christians, which is crazy. But Jesus tells the Christians there, not to be afraid. And he tells them that if they face death head on, they will receive a crown, the crown of life. And it's interesting that it's a crown because each of the churches in the letters gets a different reward. And in this case, I think it's, it's a special type of symbol that for a group of people that are experiencing huge institutionalized persecution at the hands of an emperor, that the symbol for what they receive as a reward is a crown. It is a symbol of honor, authority, prestige. In their context, it would have been a symbol of oppression, a symbol of idolatry, a symbol of the ambitions of kind of a crazy guy. And Jesus here is flipping it on its head and saying, look, this is not going to be bestowed on the people that have the crowns now. Instead, it's going to be bestowed on the people who don't view living as victory, but victory being faithfulness until death. And I think one of the most important things in this passage for us as we begin to think about applications is how does Jesus tell the Christians in Smyrna to respond? How do you respond to suffering, to trials, to persecution, to death? He says, remain faithful. He doesn't tell them to form a militia or join a super PAC or learn how to sword fight or overthrow the government. And I'm sure the early Christians, just like us, would have wanted to do all of those things because the reality is we all want to live in safety and comfort. Nobody wants to be dragged out into the street or thrown in prison or killed. It's crazy. So they're faced with the same choices that we are when we encounter hostility. How do we respond to it? 
And often, when we create safety for ourselves, it's just that. We have to create it, more so than a reliance on Jesus. But Revelation, in fact, drives this point home later with the imagery of the triumphant lion as a slain lamb in chapters 5, verses 5 through 6. And Keener says, this is a quote, we overcome not by returning hostility, but by laying down our lives in the confidence that God will vindicate us. And so, if the ultimate cost of following Jesus could be death, the biggest question, this is like the whole, this is the whole thing, as I was thinking about, like, what's, what's the crux of this passage? This is it. This is the whole thing. The big idea, okay? If you've come from movement, it's a big idea. Is he worth it? If Jesus says, hey, be faithful unto death. If, like, death is the most that somebody can, can give. Like, there's, there's nothing, right? There's nothing after that. Like, yeah, I can give my money. I can give my time. I can, I, I don't know, give all sorts of stuff. But it's like, yeah, if I'm, if I'm dead, I'm dead, right? That's typically when we think of, like, worst-case scenarios about situations in life. We're like, yeah, dying, dying would be the worst, the worst thing. And I think that most of us would like to think that the answer to that question is yes. And it's something that actually I was listening to Nick say the time, and I thought, I feel like he like, stole, my, stole my thing, like you were like, looking at my notes or something. Uh, because as I was reflecting on it, I think more often than not, the answer is actually no, that I, I don't think that Jesus is worth it. And that is demonstrated less by, by my thoughts and what I think and say and just simply more by my actions and how I live every day. We make compromises all the time, big and small, that say to Jesus, you know what, I, I don't really think you're worth it. And if we aren't faithful to Jesus, in the small things in life, the, the most basic of choices that we make every day, we can't possibly believe that we're going to be faithful, him, faithful to him in the biggest things, like death. And for me, this has been a rather personal challenge. I shared my story with Contrast months ago when we were just starting, and so there's a lot of new faces here, and there's a lot of people that probably haven't heard my story. But I'm same-sex attracted. And as a Christian, that is an incredibly challenging place to be. Because on one side, I say, well, if I look at the Bible and, and based on my interpretation of it, this is what obedience to God in life looks like. I have to make this certain choice on this hand. On the other hand, it could be so easy to just take what I want. And of course, I want to live in a way that feels free, that feels true to myself, if you will, to pull language from you know, general culture. I want to have romantic relationship. I want to have a family, as much as you can think of that in a traditional you know, nuclear family idea. I have a great family here with you guys, but you know, that doesn't change the fact that I want something more. And so every day I'm faced with this choice of 
do I think that Jesus is more valuable than the things that I can take and experience in my earthly life? Do I think that Jesus is actually more important than my emotions, than my security, than my uh, personal fulfillment, my self-actualization? All of those things are questions that I wrestle with on a, on a daily basis. And listen, that's not the only problem I have. I have lots of other problems, too. <laughs> that's a big one, though. And I'm sure that all of you are not necessarily wrestling with big questions or big issues like that, but I know for certain that you face choices every single day where you are having to choose and answer the question, is Jesus worth it to me? Because maybe you're making ethical compromises at work. I have a whole list here. It's so fun, coming up with things that people could be doing wrong. <laughs> maybe you're allowing bitterness to build up in your relationships because you won't have hard conversations. Maybe you're causing tension in your family and with your kids because you have a lot of pride and you push, push them to fit into the vision of what you think they should be. Maybe you join in on a demeaning joke so that you can fit into a group. Maybe you disrespect people, even bully people. In person, or a big one now is online. How we treat people online when we're not face to face with them is a big deal. Maybe we fight for politicians and political parties than we do for God. Maybe we're only generous with our money when it's for ourselves. Maybe we won't allow ourselves to open up to a group of people like a core group to share the things that are burdening us so that we can be transformed by the Spirit because we believe that God shouldn't have access to parts of our lives, as if he hasn't seen everything. And the list can go on, and it's pretty much almost endless, and it can be quite personal to whatever situation you're in. But I think that if we put ourselves in the shoes of a Christian in Smyrna in the first century, we have to come to the understanding that the choices that they were making for Jesus likely had implications that we can't even possibly fathom for our lives now. Like, just the truth is, people are not coming through our doors to drag us out into the streets and throw us in jail for having a church service right now. That's great. It's a blessing. We live in that world. But it has also made us blind to what sacrifice really means for Jesus. These people in Smyrna, this church that Jesus is writing to, they would have lost their family, their friends, their community, their ethnic identity. Remember, they're like, hey, we're Jews. Like, we're fully Jews. And now all of a sudden, like, their own people are saying, like, you're, you're not part of us. Imagine, imagine that. They're losing their safety, their security, their influence, their power. Again, I was talking with Trey about this earlier, and we were just discussing about, like, just think about somebody at this time. Like, the way that we get money, that we have an in, in income, is so different. Like, in this time, like, if people in a city or a place, like, exile you, like, you're done. There's no resources. It's not like, 
oh, I can go get a job somewhere, or I can just move, or I can, you know, when these people are making these choices to follow Jesus, it's like, you've lost everything. And Jesus recognizes that. And I think that they certainly would have been faced with the questions of compromise, the same questions that we're faced with, and they would have been very much tempted to devalue Jesus in that time. And in fact, it would have been, I think, easier to be like, yes, I love you, Jesus, but like, I also want to live. Like, that's, right? You know, hey, you're great, but I, I don't want to die. I like my life, okay? I like living. And we see what happens when there is compromise because that's what the Smyrnian Jews did. They chose their protections, their comfort, their standing, their influence, all of the things on the list. They chose that over allowing themselves to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus because they couldn't face the truth and the consequences that may have come from that. And I think that we can relate to their reasoning because at the end of the day, it's just self-preservation. And who among us doesn't make choices all the time relating to self-preservation, furthering our own interests. And I think something that we deal with right now as the church in America in 2022 is how do we further our interests in a hostile environment? How do we go out in the world and live as Christians and spread the gospel in a hostile environment? And unfortunately, I think that we often, more often than not, pick the path of self-preservation, believing that our efforts to do so will actually help to further our cause and to help the gospel flourish. By that, I mean, I think we pursue power and we pursue wealth and we pursue influence and we pursue policy and most importantly, we pursue tribalism because there's safety in numbers. And we go, hey, we're going to form our little group over here and fight this other group over here because that's what's going to, to make our cause be successful and, and go further. But if we look at Smyrna, the Christians there were horribly treated. And instead of doing those things for self-preservation, they just put their trust in Jesus completely. And it's really hard for us to picture that. That they were gentle and lowly and loving because our reaction, my reaction to that often is like, yeah, but they are, they're like getting trampled on. They're weak. Like how could they just sit there and roll over and get, have all this bad stuff happen to them? Like for Jesus? Like come on, stand up for yourselves. But Jesus says that they will be unequivocally rewarded for that sacrifice. And it's totally possible that it could just be a coincidence. But Smyrna was actually one of only two churches in these letters to be completely praised. And Smyrna later ends up being one of the last cities in Asia Minor to hold out and withstand the invasion from the Turks and the Ottomans later on. And there's a lot of connection in the book of Revelation and the letters to, you know, people make historical connections all the time. Um, 
some of the cities that were most harshly praised don't even exist anymore. Or not harshly praised, but harshly you know, criticized, reproved, don't exist anymore. And so I actually like to think that it's not a coincidence. And I like to think that Smyrna, lasting as it did, was because of the suffering of the Christians that lived there. And that the Christians that suffered there actually served as a blessing to that city. And that the gospel flourished because the Christians there were lions living as lambs. And they were faithful to Jesus unto death, and they didn't have any compromises. So I'm going to invite the band up, and as we do that, we have the bread in the cup here and in the back. It is all gluten-free at this point, so you don't have to go to a special place if you're gluten-free. We decided that that was too shameful. But as we do this, there are two things that I want you to reflect on, okay? Two things. In what ways, and I'm trying to narrow down, because otherwise in, in life, like, we can just, you know, it's, t- it's too big for us to think about. So last week, think about last week, in what ways did you compromise the value of Jesus in pursuit of your own self-preservation? And then, in what ways, in the week ahead, can you tell Jesus that he is, in fact, worth it all? Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.